the dark room i'm paul and in our sixth time out i am taking a trip to a local theater to see my favorite movie if not favorite one of my favorite movies it's a wonderful life i'm sure everyone's seen it a million times on tv and so have i and on dvd and vhs but i've never seen it in a theater so i'm on my way just got in the car and i wanted to say a few things before i start the car since my muffler <laughs> fell off a while ago and uh, i don't think you could hear me if i uh if I started the car and started talking. So anyway, um, I'm getting ready to leave. I'm all excited. I'm going to bring the recorder in and I'm hoping to uh, record a little bit of the theater organ concert that goes on before the movie. You know, not enough to get in trouble copyright wise, but enough to uh, give you a flavor of what it's like. And uh, I, uh, I haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life in a little while, a couple months at least, maybe six months. And uh, just reading the synopsis online again today to refresh my memory made me excited to go see it tonight. So that's about it. I'm going to uh, start the car in a minute after I stop recording, drive there. And uh, like I said, I'm hoping to bring in the recorder and see if I can grab some Nat sound in the theater just to give you a taste of what it's like and later on we're going to talk about another of my favorite christmasy movies the george c scott 1984 edition of uh christmas carol which some people say this uh it's a wonderful life is kind of a variation of the christmas carol theme so i guess it's appropriate that we talk about them together here in the uh, christmas extravaganza here in the dark room podcast <laughs> so uh with all that uh to look forward to. I'm sure you can't wait. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's a clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because, you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on Earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You will spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Poor George.
the lobby at intermission. It's pretty cool. Just heard uh, heard uh, the manager say that there are 900 people here, which is quite a bit for a movie for 1946. Um, lobby's packed. Everyone's in line to get popcorn. I would be too, but <laughs> the line's from the concession stand to the entrance, which is pretty long. So, But so far, it's really good. It's uh, The movie's better than I remember because you totally focus when you're in a the theater. So uh, there are little things I don't remember seeing on TV ever. So, But uh, intermission can't be too much longer, so uh, i got to go back in and get my seat. to me. Get me back to my wife and kids. Help me, Clarence, please. Please. I want to live again. I want to live again. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George. Bert, do you know me? Know you? <laughs> you kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... Zuzu's pedals. Zuzu. There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas. Well, I just got back to the car and I'm still sniffling from the end of the movie. Wow. It was 10 times better in a theater. Amazing. And I was like nine rows back from the front of the balcony, so I wasn't super close, but still. It was fantastic. Um, the intermission, they took an intermission um, right after the uh, the honeymoon at the, the house that they would eventually buy and, and renovate. And uh, it took a little bit of the steam out of the movie because, uh, you know, you, you stop for a half hour and go to the bathroom and have a raffle and everything. And uh, you have to start over again. You know, once the movie picks back up. But um, no, it was great. It was fantastic. Surprisingly small frame. It's like, wow, it's like, you know, four by three TV aspect ratio. It looked like, I don't know what it was originally shot in, but the way they were matting it was, was looked like you were watching it on TV. But uh, they had a Tom and Jerry um, Night Before Christmas or something uh, short first, which was very dim. And I was afraid the movie was going to be dim because I saw House of Wax here in 3D, and my eyes really bothered me because it was kind of dim. But I think it was partly the 3D glasses. They were the polarized ones. You know, it's like wearing sunglasses. So it ta you take however bright the movie is, and then you, you know, cut it in half with sunglasses on. But uh, no, the movie started to look fantastic. 
print was really, really clean, except there were a lot of weird edits in it, like little jump cuts here and there. So I wonder if it's, you know, it's, you know, been damaged and spliced together to fix, you know, issues. No content loss doesn't seem like, but if anything, you know, seconds lost here and there. But wow, whew. Uh, hard to see the end of the movie through the tears. <laughs> wow, everyone applauded. What was it when he, uh, when uh, his brother toasted him as the richest man in town? Everyone applauded, and then when as the movie was ending, everyone wouldn't stop applauding. So it was it was fantastic, uh, even with the you know the small seats and you know and all that kind of. It was. I heard the manager say to someone in the lobby at intermission that there were at least nine hundred people there which is a pretty good crowd. It's not a huge theater. It's big, but it's no Fox theater or anything. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a big place though. You know, it's got a balcony and main floor. I've never sat on the main floor though. I always go in the balcony because you, you know, there's no balconies at other, at regular theaters. So you might as well enjoy it while you can, you know, <laughs> but the negative is you're, you're farther away actually, because you have the whole main floor for the most part. And then you're kind of hanging over, so, you know, you have most of the main floor in front of you. But uh, it was a great time, as always. They had, uh, I guess they had some kind of uh, dulcimers or something playing. They said like 27 people playing before the theater organ concert started. And, and then that went for a half hour, 45 minutes at least. Um, and that was really good. You don't hear theater organ very often. I guess unless you go to church, which I haven't been to church since I was a little kid. So, <laughs> so, but this was my church, basically. That's how I always say it. Yeah. If, and especially in a place like that, it feels like a church, you know. Wow. So it was excellent experience as I knew it would be. Last time I was here was for, crap, what did I see last time? I don't even remember now. I've been here, this is probably my fourth trip. And usually I'll come for like a Halloween show. And uh, this was a Christmas show and it was really good. If you have a classic old theater um, in your area that does this kind of thing, you should uh, you should go. I definitely recommend it. This is uh, owned by the, I think, the Motor City Theater Organ Society, something like that. And uh, it's nonprofit, I, I'm pretty sure. And it's all donations and... I bought a 50-50 raffle ticket, and I was so excited. I had the first four numbers of one of them, and of course didn't have the last three or whatever. But it was fun. It was worth a dollar to have those first four numbers. <laughs> I would have. I came that close to winning a hundred bucks. They gave away three hundred dollars, and then twenty dollars, three one hundred dollar prizes, then a twenty dollar prize, and then some salt and pepper shakers, and a plate, and a sweatshirt, Wonderful Life sweatshirt. That would have been cool to win, but. Uh, it was like the old days, I guess, winning, uh, winning dishes at the theater. That's why my grandma always tells me how great the dishes were, or used to tell me how great the dishes were when you went to the theater. Yeah! Hello, Bedford Falls! Merry Christmas! Merry Christmas, George! Merry Christmas, George! Merry Christmas, movie house! Merry Christmas, Emporium! Merry Christmas, you wonderful old Billy and Lone! <sighs> well, I'm on the road. On the way home, uh, hopefully the uh, the car's not too loud. <laughs> you can hear them. the fact that I don't have a muffler. Um, 
just driving back to the expressway. Can't remember if this is a right turn here or a left turn. I think it's a left turn. But you know what? I think it's a right turn. Hold on a second. Pretty sure it's a right turn. Always surprised at how uh, rough this area is. For such a fantastic theater, it's in a pretty crappy spot. But, you know, back when it was new, it wasn't a bad area, I'm sure. You know, I'm sure this was a pretty nice place back then. But basically, you know, it's, they say it's Redford, but it's basically Detroit. Although I guess looking at it, it doesn't look that bad around here right now. But, um, you know, but uh, it's always surprising watching a movie in a theater that you've never seen in a theater because um, you do um, notice a lot more when you're in the theater, you know, because when you're at home, you know, there's you're, there are all these different distractions and things and it's easy to uh, to miss things at home. Like, I never noticed all the praying there is in, in It's a Wonderful Life, you know, because there's they're praying at the beginning and voiceover, and uh, then the kids pray, I know, where the boy says, should I pray for, or the daughter says, should I pray for, for daddy, mom? And she says, yes, pray as hard as you can or something. And then George is praying on the, on the, uh, uh, bridge and uh, so there is a lot of prayer although I heard Capra there was originally he was going to have like the whole town saying the Lord's Prayer or something at the beginning of the movie but he took it out because or he didn't do it because he thought it would be too heavy-handed or something which I think is good because there's a lot of I mean there's angels in it and they're talking about you know they're watching him from heaven and you know so there is a lot of uh, religious uh, stuff in the movie, as it is. So it's it's fine that they took it out. Some things um, like the uh, what did I? There was a lot of stuff I noticed that I haven't seen before. Just because you know you're watching it on the small screen, I don't have a HD TV or Blu-ray or anything. So all I've ever seen it is on TSC, and uh, there was a lot of stuff that I you know that I like when they're in the the house for their honeymoon and they show the uh, posters I remember Burton well Bert and the one guy hanging the posters outside but I don't remember seeing them as much you know and everything was just seemed richer and and sharper and you know it's just it's so much um, more um, impactful when you're watching in the theater than on TV you know I hope I'm not sounding like a broken record but that is the that's the main thing I noticed is it's just so you know you you totally focused on and even you know there were some people with cell phones and stuff even though you would think in a theater like this there wouldn't be as much of that but there still was and and you know it's everyone people today are bigger than they used to be and you know so everyone was kind of squeezed into the little seats and the, but uh, oh and I so surprised oh you know, I'm in the balcony, and it's pretty angled steps, you know, going down the balcony. And it's amazing how many people fell. It's like older ladies. One guy, this huge guy, probably 6'4", six, 6'5", six, big guy, he slammed into my leg. <laughs> and I jumped, you know, you know, instinctively, you, you, your reflex is to move instead of grabbing him. Because like, I didn't see what happened until he hit the ground, and then he got up, and he was okay. But... It's like wow! It's amazing how many people fell, and I, I got up at intermission to use the restroom, and 
I didn't have any problems, so so I don't know. But uh, Mr. Potter looked really uh, different on the big screen. Lionel Barrymore, he looked. Uh, he didn't look as mean on the big screen, you know. Like when you watch him at home, you know, he he seems bigger on television than he does on on the movie screen. I don't know. You know. That was weird. I liked the scene where Mr. Martini gets his house too. It was big. It was um, bigger in the theater too than than at home. Up here, I am turning to get to go do a turnaround to get on the expressway. This should be fun. All right. Now I have to go up and spin around. This is always nice. Hopefully you can hear me over this muffler. <laughs> to me it sounds really loud. Hopefully you can hear me. And I have the heat on a little. It's pretty chilly out. So but hopefully I can go up and turn around and get on the expressway because I'm going the wrong way right now. But uh should be able to. There were some scenes that really stood out to me. Like, it almost felt like there were extra shots in them. Just because, you know, things that I'd never noticed in, uh, on television. You know, and in, in, in some of the, the versions I've seen, I have the, the special edition, I think it is, DVD. Um, which should be the whole movie. But, you know, some of the versions on TV, I'm sure, you know, they probably edit for, for time. You know, so I'm sure some stuff may be missing from that. But uh, oh, you know what really stood out when when Harry or um, um, when George <laughs> Harry Potter, it's a, not even Harry, it's Henry Potter, I think is Mr. Potter's name. But George, when George is running through, um, oh shoot, I think I'm in the wrong lane. Um, when George is running through downtown um, Bedford Falls and it's Pottersville you know when he has when he's no longer when he gets his wish and it was never born and uh, I'm assuming everyone knows this movie although <laughs> there was a woman behind me you know you sit there and you get to listen to everyone's conversations because you know you're at the movies and you're waiting for the movie to start so you get to sit there and listen to everyone talk around you and the woman behind me, of course, says, I've never seen this movie before. And you want to say, don't you have a television set? Because, you know, it's on every year. Now it's on every year. They said something like, 
like NBC airs at Christmas Eve and then one other time and they're the official they have the official rights to it now to air it I guess and then uh, it used to be this is what caused you know it to be so popular is it was kind of a semi-public domain kind of movie I don't think it was ever totally public domain but um, it was a lot cheaper at least to air it for a for a time so um because I thought there was like a clerical issue or something with the copyright renewal or something, which is such a shame. It's like, can't the government fix these stupid loopholes? Because it screwed Night of the Living Dead. You know, these guys lost some money, you know, through some of the time, some years, I guess, because of copyright issues. So, you know, it seems like logically they could get their crap together and, you know, fix it you know it's logical like night of the living dead you know who made the movie it's like why should other people be able to profit from it you know although look <laughs> george doesn't seem to be profiting much off of dawn or maybe day two with rubenstein you know having the rights to it because i think rubenstein was the one who uh, who made it possible for them to do the dawn remake you know so he probably profited the most off of the dawn remake you know, between him and George, this is, you know, speculation. I'm not, I don't, I no inside knowledge or anything. And, you know, if Richard Rubenstein wants to sue me, I, uh, the uh, Darkroom podcast has no money. So uh, <laughs> there's nothing to get. But uh, it just seems um, kind of sleazy that the guys who, who, who make the things don't always profit from it. But anyway, the, the thing that started, that, um, that jumped out to me the most was the close-ups of the different buildings in Pottersville to show the difference between Bedford Falls and, and Pottersville, where they showed the different bars and the uh, pawn shop and the, you know, the, the dancing girls at the theater, 20 live girls or something. And, uh, um, you know, it's just, uh, it was uh, interesting to see all the buildings because in on the small screen, I never noticed a lot of those, you know, to show how different um, the uh, you know, Bedford Falls was without George there. Well, it was Pottersville, but uh, so that was one thing that really stood out was you could really tell, you know, the details when it was on the, the big screen, which of course is, you know, the advantage of seeing the movie or a movie in the theater is that, you know, it's a way bigger image and it's dark so you know this the image really stands out and you're totally focused on it because you're sitting there looking straight ahead you know there's nothing to distract you for the most part although a couple of times people's phones would ring and distract me a little but you know I can't complain overall it was a good audience although you know I, I have a I question whether there's such thing as a good audience you know <laughs> Um, just because they, you know, they 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 tend to talk, and you know, I had to get up a couple times so people could uh, could get out of my aisle, and I purposely sat on the end in case I had to use the restroom, and my aisle stayed empty. It was like a six-seat little kind of the way that's broken up. It was just off center, but uh, close to the center at least. But I knew I was originally in the center in the middle of the center aisle and I thought well if I have to use the restroom there's no way I want to climb over people so uh so I moved to uh to an to an end seat and my row stayed empty till 
Movie start, it was supposed to start at 8. My row stayed empty till 8.15 or 8.20, maybe 8.30. And then because the movie hadn't started, the movie started probably 8.35, something like that. So my row stayed empty till way after it was supposed to start. And then three people came and I had to get up. And, uh, and then uh, after intermission, I had to get up once. But I left my seat during intermission too. But, you know, I didn't have to have anyone move because I was on the, cor on the end of the aisle. So, but uh, I can't complain about this audience. There was one guy in front of me that I, when he went to sit down two rows in front of me, I don't know how he's fit in the seat because he was a big guy. And these seats, like I said, they're not that big. And the main problem is, is that they're pretty close to each other. So your knees kind of touch the seat in front of you. But this guy, I don't know how he made it into this seat. And for like the first 10 minutes that he was sitting, he was sitting pretty high in the seat. And I was nervous because his head was blocking me. But this was before the movie started. So for some reason he was sitting a little high so he could talk to his friends or something. Because once the movie started, he slid right down and there were no problems. And there was no one right in front of me. So no obstructions that way. One baby cried late in the movie. But you know, by that point, everyone's so happy you know, what a polite crowd leaving because everyone was so happy watching that movie. And I think um, that was something Capra said as he wanted to inspire people or he wanted to make the most inspirational movie he could. And I think he succeeded because, wow, it was, uh, you know, you feel great when you watch the end of that movie. When you watch the whole movie, you feel great, but the end just grabs you and... Uh, you know, that's the reason you go to the movies or you watch a movie is to be uh, emotionally drawn in, and this movie does that. Um, so, you know, and like, you know, I'm sure everyone knows this was not a huge financial success when it first was released. They said something, I don't know what the original budget was, but they're, the, the money that they, well, the amount that the studio said they would need to make, that this is what I read online, was six point something million, like six and a half million or something. The studio said they had to make that much to, to break even. And uh, which, you know, is crap because you're when you listen to accountants and everything, no movie ever makes money, you know? Because that's the thing is when you have shareholders and you have to pay percentages of profits and stuff, then it's guaranteed that no movie will ever make money. But this movie made like three, three point three million or something in its initial release, something like that. I read. Don't you know? Don't quote me on it. As always, you know, everyone has access to the internet. So for I'm pretty sure for the most part. So if you want hard numbers, you know, you can look them up. You know, that's not what my goal is. But uh, so it, it according to the the one source I read online it made half of the money it needed to to be profitable but then of course since then you know since 46 it's had to have made its money back over and over and over again you know this movie has been shown so many times and you know and it's all it's new again basically with the NBC deal it's making money all over again I would think and then with showings like this it's got to be making money but uh they said it was. It came out in '46, and they rushed it out because they wanted it to be up for consideration for Academy Awards for 1946. And they said it's a shame because it, it got five nominations, I think, 
including Best Picture and Best Actor. I think I think it got Best Director too, but it didn't win any. Um, best score, I think, was one it, got, it was nominated for too, but it didn't win any awards, any um, Academy Awards at least. And um, I have no uh, my my opinion on the Academy Awards is that they're kind of worthless anyway. If anything, they're just uh, good to help promote a movie. Once a movie wins an Academy Award, I'm sure it usually helps its uh, its uh, income. But uh, it didn't win any, which proves that the Academy Awards doesn't, don't, they don't know what they're talking about because they tend to pick the movies, other than The Godfathers, it seems like. They tend to pick the movies that end up being forgotten, and the movies that they skip are the ones that last forever, it seems like. So it's almost like you don't want to win Academy Awards um, because uh, that kind of proves your movie probably isn't that good. Although there are some Best Picture Academy Award winners that I like, like Dances with Wolves, and I'm sure, I'm not positive, but I thought Godfather 1 and 2 both won Best Picture, and uh, Jaws probably didn't. That's not the kind of movie you give Academy Awards to, but, you know, and I'm not really up on Academy Awards because I don't really put a lot of worth in them, but... Uh, I wonder if uh, Rocky won an Academy Award for Best Picture. If not, then it proves Academy Awards don't know anything because that movie's fantastic too. Same feeling as this movie when you're done watching it. Um, but yeah, so they said it, it would have been better off being released in 47 because it would have had easier competition, which who cares really, but... Uh, and I think Miracle on 34th Street was the same year. Maybe that came out in 47 instead of 46. Maybe it came out in 46, though. But they mentioned it online in relation to 47. So I think it came out a year later. But it uh, doesn't matter. You know, who cares what this movie made? You know, we don't, we don't have anything invested in it financially. So as long as it got made and it's still around, that's all I'm concerned with. Because, uh, you know, I'm not a shareholder or anything. And... and movie company or anyone that uh, owns the rights to this movie so I'm just happy it got made Jimmy Stewart was excellent in it I can't picture anyone else in it they say Henry Fonda was considered but I I'm glad he didn't get it because I don't think he would have been as as warm as uh James Stewart and uh and what's her name Donna Reed was awesome in this role it's like she didn't get a huge role I mean, a lot of her role was just looking, you know, giving uh, um, giving uh, James Stewart looks. You know, she did a lot of facial acting, I guess you could phrase it. But uh, she was great, and she was smoking hot in this movie. And I, and I, I've never seen Donna Reed in anything else other than um, It's a Wonderful Life, and I think she was perfect in it. Everyone was great in this movie. Uncle Billy was fantastic. Ert, Bernie and Ert <laughs> Ernie and Bert were great in it Ward Bond is always good though he played Bert you know you can't go wrong with him he's always in the he's always like a supporting guy in the big John Wayne movies and he always I think he always kind of outshines John Wayne at times because Wayne always has to be the quiet tough guy and Ward Bond gets to be kind of a comic relief guy sometimes you know but he's this big tough guy in the not as big and tough looking in, in It's a Wonderful Life as in other movies I've seen him in, but uh, great actor, has a lot of presence, uh, seems like a really nice guy too. 
don't know um, much about him as a as a star, you know, Ward Bond, but as a supporting guy, I've seen him a lot, and when he's a supporting character, he's always good. Um, Lionel Barrymore was excellent as Mr. Potter. You can't uh, can't complain about that. He was perfect in it. You know, <laughs> and it's funny because when I watch uh, the scenes in his office, I always picture that Saturday Night Live skit where um, they do the thing where they're, uh, um, what is it, Dana Carvey is playing, uh, playing. Uh, I think he's playing uh, George Bailey, and uh, and they, uh, the whole town <laughs> attacks Mr. Potter and, you know, tears him apart kind of thing, and uh it just was funny because I saw the, the I was watching the scene and it just made me think of that. So, uh, but uh, yeah, it was everyone was good. Every actor and it was good. The lady who played their uh, their maid, I think, was the one who came in at the end and said she was saving up to get a divorce if she ever got married, and she donated her money. You know, so. But yeah, everyone was good. Even the supporting guys, like the guy who's like the rent collector or whatever. For Potter's Field. And he's telling Mr. Potter how Bailey Park is, uh, you know, people are moving out of Potter's Field and moving into Bailey Park. And he says, you know, that he, someday he'll be asking George Bailey for a job. That guy was great, too. And he's, I've seen him in a million things and I don't know his name. But he was great, and he had a teeny part. You know, even the guy in the bridge, the bridge guy who runs the drawbridge, I guess, um, when George and Clarence are in the bridge, the bridge room or whatever, the control room for the bridge, warming up, you know, drying after jumping into the river, he was good. You know, all of the going to spit, and then he stops because Clarence is, uh, you know, is saying he's a, an angel and he's from heaven and all that, and, you know. So it's just top to bottom, great movie. You know, I can't, I can't find anything wrong with it. You know, it was a little disturbing when George snaps. You know, after Uncle Billy loses the money, and he's yelling at him and calls him a fool or whatever it is. That was a little disturbing because, you know, Jimmy Stewart is is the likable guy, and George Bailey's this likable guy, and you don't see anything like that in the rest of the movie. And then he uh, he snaps and he's shaking him and you know pushes him down and you know and, oh and what was really cool is I never noticed all of the animals Uncle Billy had in his house because you always see the crow at the office but then at the house you don't <laughs> this guy just cut me off what a jackass um, at his at his house you know I remember seeing the squirrel crawl on him when he's when he's got his head down crying. But he's got like cages with different birds around, and I saw other animals um, crawling around. There was a dog, and then you know his uh, the squirrel climbs on him. So you get this idea that Uncle Billy's this really nice guy, and uh, you know, good with he loves animals, and probably you know you think loves kids and everything, and so. But uh, that was another detail I picked up that I never really noticed in the in the. TV versions, you know, of the movie because, uh, you know, it, you could just see so much more detail, you know. Yeah, it's like bar crowd out here, it looks like. I got people driving up my back. Interesting.
construction here. Couldn't get out. Violet always looks great in this movie. She, I don't know who that actress is who plays Violet, but uh, she's smoking hot too in this movie. I don't think she's Donna Reed hot, but they always try to make her seem kind of the, you know, the easy kind of flirty girl. And uh, Sam Wainwright's kind of annoying in this movie. That whole hee haw or thing he does through the whole movie, and they set him up as a kid doing it, so you know who he is. But he's like he says the same thing his whole life. One thing I kept thinking is when Mr. Potter finds that $8,000 stuck in his newspaper that Uncle Billy, you know, forgot in the paper, kind of accidentally put it in there. It's like you just keep thinking, what is he? What did he do with that movie? What's this? Is this guy that or that money? Is this guy that sleazy that he would take the 8000 and keep it? Like to him, $8,000 is nothing. Though, you know, his goal is to ruin the building alone and to screw over George, you know. But it just—I kept expecting the guy that kept wheeling Mr. Potter around to to show up at George's house and drop it in the on the table too, because he knows Mr. Potter's a scumbag and he knows he did it. And you know how Mr. Potter couldn't prove if he took the money and gave it back, you know. But yeah, that's a huge wad of, or a huge pile of money they collect at the end. You would think that's way more than enough, but then $8,000 is a lot of money. So, and I'm sure those are dollars at $1 at a time, you'd think. So, but uh, overall, I would have to say this was an excellent experience, a fantastic theater, a great uh, job by the people who volunteer and maintain and run uh, the Redford Theater in Detroit, Michigan. And the movie was great. It was a good print. It was, uh, you know, like I said, a few issues with splices, but nothing, it never jumped or anything. It would be, there'd be a jump cut and that it jumped ahead, you know, a second or two in time, but it never jittered in the frame. So whoever did the splicing did a nice job. You know, it's just a, t a couple times there would be, um, you know, a, a little awkward of an edit, you know, within a shot. It would go from, you know, the shot, kind of a medium shot, cut to the to a close-up like they had done a zoom, but it cut to it, you know. But I can't blame them for that, you know. <laughs> when you're, It costs $4 to get in. So no one's making it, you know, no one's getting rich off of watching this movie or you know, showing this movie. And for four bucks, it's like you couldn't buy the DVD for four bucks, I wouldn't think. So, and I was, I really wanted to get some popcorn at the, at the theater, but the line was so long, you know, it's, it's like, I don't know, it feels like like 50 yards from the concession stand to the doors. I'm sure it's not that far, but you know, it feels pretty long. And w every time I'd go to get popcorn, it was from the concession stand to the doors. To the entrance so it's like I I stood in line for the restroom which flew you know men's rooms fly usually but uh, I just I didn't want to get in line for the concession stand you know and their concessions are really inexpensive too so you can't complain and I like and I want to help them out they had a box in the middle of the lobby to uh, 
they're they're collecting money to to replace the carpet in the lobby and uh I wanted to throw a buck in there but I used my only dollar to buy my 50/50 raffle ticket. I had a I had a $20 bill when I got there. Paid 4 bucks to get in. Bought my 50/50 raffle ticket. And I can't I can't put a 5 or a 10 in in the the box for the carpet. You know, I could put a dollar, but I don't think I could I could uh be comfortable putting 5 in. That's a lot of money. But there were a few dollars in there, and I, uh, they gave a questionnaire, like a survey, asking people what movies they'd like to see. And uh, I marked off a few, and uh, then there's a line at the end where you can make suggestions. And I said, uh, any of the universal horror movies I'd come to see. I think one of the ones I saw recently there was, oh, it was one of the werewolf it was a werewolf movie I can't remember what it was though I have the darn it it has to be Frankenstein because Frankenstein's on the poster I have the little poster that they handed out that day like a homemade poster that they printed out and uh, darn I saw another one that was a little cheapy oh shoot what was it with well when I saw um, I saw House of Wax in 3D then I saw another one there damn the monolith monsters or something that was a little weird it wasn't monolith monsters but it was some oh it was chronos i think it was called and uh it was like it was really cheesy but uh it was good though but but yeah i've had to have been there at least four times but overall this experience this was probably my best time there you know my favorite movie if not tied with night of the living dead this one is either number one or number one along with Night of the Living Dead. They're both either equal or, you know, after seeing it, it has jumped ahead because it's so good. You know, it's like Night of the Living Dead definitely does not leave you with the same feeling this movie does. So, uh, but, you know, I don't rate movies, so I'm not going to rate it. But, you know, you don't rate It's a Wonderful Life anyway. It's perfect. The fool flew all the way up here in a blizzard. Carrie, how about your banquet in New York? Oh, I left right in the middle of it. As soon as I got Mary's telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast. <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. Had a boy, Clarence.
Now, in case you didn't know, It's a Wonderful Life is based on a short story called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. And here's a a little history of that short story and how it came to be uh, made into It's a Wonderful Life, according to Wikipedia. Inspired by a dream, Stern wrote a 4,100-word short story called The Greatest Gift in 1943 after working on it since the late 30s. Unable to find a publisher, he sent the 200 copies he had printed as a 21-page booklet to friends as Christmas presents in December of 1943. The story came to the attention of RKO Pictures producer David Hempstead, who showed it to actor Cary Grant, who was interested in playing the lead role. RKO purchased the motion picture rights for $10,000 After several screenwriters worked on adaptations, RKO sold the rights to the story in 1945 to Frank Capra's production company for the same $10,000, which he then adapted into It's a Wonderful Life. The story was first published as a book in December of 1944 with illustrations by Raffaello Busoni. Stern also sold it to Reader's Scope magazine, which published the story in its December 1944 issue, and to the magazine Good Housekeeping, which published it under the title The Man Who Was Never Born in its January 1945 issue, which was published in December of 1944. So all of that happened before It's a Wonderful Life was released in 1946, although uh, I haven't read um, the original short story, The Greatest Gift, but um, it sounds like um, It's a Wonderful Life is is expanded and it's a lot more um, involved than The Greatest Gift. This is The Greatest Gift synopsis. The story begins during the holiday with George Pratt, a man who is unsatisfied with his life and ready to commit suicide standing on a bridge. A strange, shabbily dressed and well-mannered man approaches him carrying a satchel. The man strikes up a conversation and George tells the man that he wishes he had never been born. The man tells him that this wish has been made official and that he was never born. The man tells George that he should take the satchel with him and pretend to be a door-to-door brush salesman when he sees anyone. When George returns home, he does as he is told and is shocked to discover that not only does his wife not know him, everyone who knew him took different and often negative steps in life because George had never been born, including his little brother who he had saved in a pond accident and instead had died without George to save him. George offers his wife a complimentary upholstery brush, which she takes, and then he leaves the house after his wife's new husband tells him to leave. Upon his departure, his wife's son pretends to shoot him with a fake cap gun and shouts, You're dead! Why won't you die? George returns to the bridge and questions the man who explains to him that he wanted more when he had already been given the greatest gift of all, the gift of life. George, now realizing the lesson, begs the man to return the gift of life, and the man agrees to it. George returns home to check if the man did, in fact, change everything back to normal. Sure enough, everything is normal, and he hugs his wife and explains that he thought he had lost her. She is confused, and as he is about to explain everything, his hand bumps a brush on the sofa behind him. Without turning around, George knows the brush was the one he had presented to her earlier. So you can see there's quite a bit left in the movie from the short story. It's just expanded to a movie length, basically. And, uh, you know, the whole religious angle is added because, they're, you know, we don't know that this guy is an angel or anything that... that um, allows him to see what it would be like if he was never born. But uh, it is interesting to see where the movie came from. Old Marley was as dead as a doornail. This must be distinctly understood. 
or nothing wonderful can come of this story I am going to relate. Now, another movie I want to talk about today is um, also based on a book, this time on Navala, by Charles Dickens called A Christmas Carol. And there have been quite a few versions of this movie made, and uh, I've seen a handful of them this Christmas, and uh, I want to talk about my favorite version. I watched the 1938 version, the 1951 version, and the 1999 version, which starred Patrick Stewart. And actually, he was pretty good as Ebenezer Scrooge. I didn't watch the 2009 Robert Zemeckis motion capture animation version, if that's what it's called. After watching Polar Express recently, I just wasn't really interested. Although I've heard that the process has gotten better since Polar Express, but it was kind of creepy watching that animation. The 38 version was interesting, and what's really interesting is that um, it was supposed to have starred Lionel Barrymore from, I'm pretty sure the 38 version was the one that was supposed to star Lionel Barrymore as Ebenezer Scrooge. And the only reason, from what I understand, that they made the 38 version, or planned it at least, was because Lionel Barrymore used to read A Christmas Carol on the radio every Christmas for years, supposedly, and he was totally um, identified with the story. Everyone saw, when they thought of Scrooge, they thought of Lionel Barrymore reading It's a Christmas Carol, or A Christmas Carol. So they planned the 38 version with him in mind, but he ended up, having health issues he was injured on a set a movie set and was unable to make the 1938 version yep i was right i just checked wikipedia and it was the 1938 version lionel barrymore was supposed to star in but um because he had broken a hip or a leg or something um and they thought he would never walk again it seemed like at that point um he had to drop out of the movie but because they had all of the sets built and everyone else cast and you know everything ready to go, they had to go ahead with the movie. So they ended up casting Reginald Owen as Ebenezer Scrooge. And he was good. I mean, everyone in every version that I watched is good. But none of them are as good as my favorite version, which is the 1984 version. Surprisingly, a made-for-TV version but still my favorite, starring George C. Scott, and probably my favorite because it starred George C. Scott. And what's interesting, when I had looked up information about the 84 version, um, Scott was only like in his 50s, I think, when he made this. So it's amazing that he looks so old. (laughs) You know, I'm sure they made him up to look older. But um, he is so good in this movie. And I remember seeing the older versions, either the 51 or 38 when I was a kid on TV, and really liking it. You know, it's it's scarier, I think, in black and white. But um, the 84 version is so good. And it's surprising, the, the stars that are in this movie. And I say stars because they're, you know, they're faces you recognize, but um, 
probably not names that most people would recognize. Um, George C. Scott, of course, was the big name in the movie, starred as Ebenezer Scrooge. But um, Edward Woodward starred as the Ghosts of Christmas Present, and uh, everyone probably remembers him from either The Wicker Man or from The Equalizer, I'm sure. Those are the two places you most people would remember him from. And then David Warner starred as Bob Cratchit, and he's been in a million things. And I always remember him as the Jack the Ripper character in, I think it was Time After Time, which had Malcolm McDowell starring as H.G. Wells and uh, David Warner as Jack the Ripper steals his time machine and goes through time. And uh, it was just a great 80s movie from what I remember, and it was one of our early cable movies that we saw over and over and over. So David Warner, to me, will always be um, Jack the Ripper. (laughs) But he plays Bob Cratchit in this, and he's really good. He's one of the best parts of the movie. His part's small, but he's still good. And also a surprisingly good part of this movie was an actor named Roger Rees, I think is how you would pronounce it. He's a British actor. Um, His last name is R-E-E-S, and he stars as Fred, um, Ebenezer Scrooge's nephew. Most people would know him, at least this is what I know him from, as Cheers. Um, I don't remember that much about the specifics of Cheers back then, but this was when um, apparently they had sold the bar, and uh, Shelley Long was gone, and what's-her-name was on the show. Merry Christmas, Bob Cratchit. And the same to you, Mr. Fred. Merry Christmas, Uncle. I said, Merry Christmas, Uncle. Humbug. Christmas or humbug, Uncle? Surely you don't mean that. I do. What's Christmas? But a time for buying things for which you have no need, no money. Time for finding yourself a year older, not an hour richer. If I could work my will, every idiot who goes about with Merry Christmas on his lips should be boiled in his own pudding and buried with a stake of holly through his heart. Come now, Uncle. Neville, you keep Christmas in your way and let me keep it in mine. Keep it? But you don't keep it. Let me leave it alone, then. Much good it may do you. Much good it has done you. There are a great many things from which I might have derived good, from which I have not profited, I dare say. Christmas among the rest. But I've always thought of Christmas time when it comes round as a good time, a kindly, forgiving, charitable time. A time when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut-up hearts freely to their fellow creatures. And so Uncle Verdi never put a scrap of gold or silver into my pocket. I do believe that it has done me good. And I say, God bless it. Not a sound from you. And you'll keep your Christmas by losing your situation. You're quite a powerful speaker, sir. I wonder you don't go into Parliament. Please don't be angry, Uncle. Come, dine with us, Dora. Dying with you. I'd see myself in hell first. It would be a great joy to me. And to my wife. Yes, your wife. I'm told she brought very little to the marriage. A poor girl, Anston. I love her. And she loves me. 
Oh, Kirsty Alley. When Kirsty Alley joined the show, he was the um, owner, apparently, of the company that owned Cheers or something. I don't remember. I wasn't that big of a fan of Cheers. But he played a character named Robin Colcourt, I think his name was. And so you'd probably remember him from that. But he was great in this version of A Christmas Carol. He was the narrator. And he also played, like I said, Scrooge's nephew. And uh, he did a great job. I thought he was good. He really added to it. And even though he's, you know, at least to me, he's more of a TV actor. Although if you look in his, uh, his filmography, he's been in a lot of stuff. But because of Cheers, I always think of him as a TV guy. Um, he didn't make the the movie seem any less like a movie, you know, seeing him in it. Um, and like I said, it is a made-for-television version, but I think these actors made it feel more than just a TV version. Actually, the uh, Patrick Stewart version from 1999, which has to have been a TV version, feels a lot more like a TV movie than the 84 version. Um, everyone was good in, in the 84 version. The effects were decent. Visually, it was pretty well done. Um, George C. Scott was fantastic in it. I, you know, he's always good. I can't remember a bad George C. Scott performance. Um, and what's interesting is, like I said, he's like in his 50s or something in this movie. I remember looking in his filmography and seeing that um, he was... Like around this time, he made another movie that I um, always remember him in called Taps, which is a Timothy Hutton movie. At a, oh, it's from 81, um, starring a young Sean Penn and a young Tom Cruise, of course. And uh, in that movie, he looks so old in 81. And then, because he's, you know, he's the head of Bunker Hill Academy, I think is the name of the school in that movie. And he, he seems so old in that and frail. And then in this movie, three years later, he seems, you know, older than in his 50s. But um, he still seems younger and more vibrant than uh, than he did in Taps. So it's amazing how he plays in Taps when in this movie he seems, you know, he you know he appears older because I always think of Scrooge as being an old guy. But he just seems more full of life and powerful in this movie than in taps so i'm always surprised by that george c scott's the c stands for campbell was born in 1927 so in 84 what was he 60 in his 50s yep so 27 30 54 57 he was in 
1984. So that is amazing because he does not look 50. Well, he does doesn't look 57 though. He looks older because they're ma- he's made up to look older. But you know he's a young guy and that movie fairly young. Though I guess at 44 myself, I start to think of the 50s as young, even though it's you know it's not that young. But anyway, um, uh, like I said. It starred some some at least recognizable faces, which I think helped to make it feel more substantial. You know, it did not feel like a made-for-TV movie, whereas the the Patrick Stewart version did not feel as big to me. You know, and and Patrick Stewart just seems so. I don't know. He just he's not the um, the he doesn't have the look that you picture when you think of Scrooge. You know. But like I said, I watched the 38 version, the 51 version, most of the 1999 version, and uh, I didn't watch the uh, <laughs> the uh, Muppets version either with Michael Caine. I did catch a movie or a documentary on Turner Classic Movies um, called A Night at the Movies, Christmas Movies, something like that it was, and they really went into um, different versions of... of um, Christmas Carol and and um, you know they mention a Christmas story and and uh, and it's a wonderful life got a big section so that I would recommend that if you get a chance to watch that documentary on Turner Classic Movies you know it's hard to go wrong with almost anything that's on Turner Classic Movies like right now I have it on as I'm recording and there's a movie called The Man from Planet X on, which is actually pretty good. What's interesting, it's got Bill Shallard in it, although he's credited as William Shallard. And as a kid, he was always in our our Arbor Drugs commercials around here. Or was it, might have been CVS by that point. But he'd say, hi, I'm Bill Shallard for whatever the drugstore was. And it's just interesting to see him, to know him as the guy in the drugstore commercials than to see him in a 1951 science fiction movie. Um, it was just kind of neat. And I'm kind of upset because right as I started to record, um, oh, what was it called? Invasion of the Saucer Men or something. It's the movie that, um, if you read Dance Macabre, it's the one Stephen King is in when they stop the movie and, and the theater manager comes out and announces that Sputnik has just been launched or something, so the the Russians have beaten us into space. And uh, I think it was Invasion of the Saucer People or Invasion of the Saucer Men. And uh, that was just on on TCM, and I just caught the last, like, 30 seconds of it. So I was mad because I've never seen it. Invasion of the Saucer Men, that's what it looks like it is. And I was hoping to get to see it because, you know, I've heard um, King mention it multiple times. And, oh boy, looking at the poster, it looks pretty cool. I don't know if the aliens look like that in the movie, but if they do, (laughs) it looks pretty neat. Um, Let's see, on Wikipedia, a spaceship lands in the woods, a teenage couple, Johnny Carter and Joan Hayden. Driving down Lover's Lane without headlights, accidentally run down one of the aliens. John Gruen, a drunken opportunist, comes across the alien's corpse. He plans to keep the body in his fridge, but the aliens arrive and kill him by injecting alcohol into his veins via their hypodermic fingernails. 
Having reported their close encounter to the police, Johnny and Joan return with the sheriff, only to find Joe's body in place of the alien. The police plan to charge them with manslaughter. Meanwhile, the dead alien's hand detaches itself, grows an eye, and runs amok. The military, following a UFO report, are soon involved. They surround the alien spaceship, but in the end, it is the teenagers who defeat the aliens when they discover that they cannot stand the glare from the car's headlights. So that is the story of the invasion of the saucer men. And I'm pretty sure that is the one that King talks about in Dance Macabre. And that was just on DCM. And I'm so mad I missed it. And I, I have you verse, so I, I hit the info and, and looked for other times and dates that it would air and there weren't any so uh, so that stinks because I almost got to see Invasion of the Soster Men but anyway back to A Christmas Carol um, AMC did a thing uh, where they showed A Christmas Carol over and over and over the 1984 version so I got to see it like three times a night two or three different nights so uh that's what made me want to talk about it because I have seen this version before, but not for a while. And it made me realize how good it really is. So if you get a chance to watch the 84 version, although the 38, the 51, and the 1999 versions are all good, I think the 38 and 51 are better than the 1999, but they're all pretty similar. The only difference is in one of the versions, um, Bob Cratchit gets fired. And when Scrooge comes around at the end of the movie, he actually gives him his job back, which kind of makes more sense. I don't know. I have found this short story, or the story, I don't know. It's not that short. Um, I've, I guess it's a novella, so it's a short story. I have found the story online, and I, and I read parts of it, but I didn't finish it because it's been a, just a busy holidays. So I didn't get to finish the story, but uh, so I don't know if... if um, Bob Cratchit actually gets fired in the story or not. But that's something that doesn't seem to happen in most of the versions of the movie. Most of the movie versions of the book is that Bob Cratchit doesn't get fired. You know, Scrooge is just kind of mean to him and at the end wants to make it up to him by giving him a raise and everything. But in the one version, I can't remember if it was the 38 or the 51, he actually fires Cratchit. Which one was it? I want to say it's the 38. Because Cratchit is uh, throwing snowballs with some kids, and they, he accidentally knocks Scrooge's hat off, and Scrooge fires him, and uh, which makes it for a pretty miserable Christmas, going home and uh, being fired. So, so that was kind of an interesting twist to the thirty-eight. I'm pretty sure it was the thirty-eight, um, but that doesn't happen in most of the versions, from what I remember. So that would be um, a plus, I would think, for you know a recommendation, I guess, for the 38 version because of uh, that twist. So, oh boy, they just shot <laughs> the man from Planet X. Oh wait, it looked like they shot his ship with a bazooka and it exploded. But now there's another ship, it looks like, landing. So I wonder if that's what happened is they destroyed his ship and now another alien ship is coming down to see what happened because everyone looks pretty upset 
that or he took off. Maybe he took off instantly. So when they went to shoot, shoot him with a, uh, a bazooka, he just ended up taking off so fast that it looked like he exploded, but he actually launched the ship into space. But wow, that was pretty interesting. The, the makeup effect on the, the alien was horrible in this movie. The man from Planet X. It was neat looking, for, but for 1951, we've, there were a lot better aliens at that point. Um, but it was still fun looking. But I haven't gotten to listen to most of the movie. I've been sitting here um, do, doing some typing and then uh, starting to record with the sound down. So I haven't really heard any of the audio. Um, but it looked like a kind of a fun 50s sci-fi movie. But uh, getting back to A Christmas Carol again, um, if you can check out the 84 version, I would highly recommend it. George C. Scott is always good, and anything you're going to see him in, for the most part, he's usually pretty good. Nine o'clock. And daylight. But what day? Hello, you there, boy. Me, sir? Yes, you, my good fellow. What day is today? Today? Why, it's Christmas Day, of course. Christmas Day. I haven't missed it. The spirits did it all in one night. Well, they can do anything they like. Of course they can. Um, hello, my fine fellow. Hello. Do you know the poultry's in the next street but one? Uh, on the corner? I should hope I did. Intelligent boy, remarkable boy. Uh, do you know if they've sold the prize turkey that was hanging there? What? The one as big as me? <laughs> Delightful boy. <laughs> Pleasure talking to you. Yes, the one as big as you. It's hanging there now. Well, go and buy it. Yes, go and buy it and bring them round so that I may tell them where to deliver it. Come back with the man, I'll give you a shilling. Come back in less than five minutes, I'll give you half a crown. <laughs> Stress myself. So much to do. I don't lose any time. Well, I, I, I was light. <laughs> I'm as happy as an angel. <laughs> I'm as May as Stormwatch. As a drunken man. <laughs> Merry Christmas to everybody and a happy new year to the world! Now, just to wrap up this holiday edition of the Dark Room podcast, uh, just a little bit of house cleaning. Um, I finished a couple of books lately fiction novels. One I had been stuck in the middle of for a while. Uh, it's called uh, Darkness at the Edge of Town by Brian Keene. And uh, it's a good story, but I kind of ran out of steam and I, I started reading other things. And then I jumped back to it recently, and I'm glad I did because it's, uh, though it doesn't really end, you know, um, it ends, the story ends, but then it keeps going and you're, you know, you don't know what totally happens at the end of it. But um, I think it was a really good uh story, interesting characters. Keen did a really nice job with it, and he usually does. I have yet to dislike a Brian Keene book that I've read. I've heard other people rip on him, but I've heard other people um, really enjoy his books, and uh, 
I have to say I've always enjoyed what I've read by him. And it got me excited about him again. And uh, I don't know why I ever stopped reading um, Darkness at the Edge of Town. I think I, I at that point I found um, the Under the Dome, the Stephen King book, at um, a used bookstore. And I bought it for 50 cents or a quarter. This huge, thick book, and I started to read that. It's a similar idea to Darkness at the Edge of Town, because in both stories, people are trapped in, in their town. You know, in, in the King version, there's like a dome, you know, over the the town, you know. And in the uh, Brian Keene version of this similar story, uh, people are trapped in the town because it's there's darkness all around the town. It's like black. And it's dark within the town, too. But if you walk off into the darkness beyond town, um, you, you know, it's you never come back. <laughs> it's so it's like you're you could leave if you want, but you're not really going to survive. Whereas in Kings, you're trapped inside. And I'm not that far in Kings because it kind of um, it bogged down right away. And I, you know, I kind of lost interest in it still sitting by my chair. And I think that's what happened is I started to think of them as the same story. So I set Keene's book down and I'm glad I picked it back up because it was fun. But then I finished it pretty quick and it got me excited about Brian Keene again. And I picked up um, a, another Keene book off my bookshelf called Castaways. I think it's Castaways, not Castaway. And uh, it's a that's a really good book. It was fun and it's um, reading the afterword or whatever it's called, what, you know, at the end of the book, Keen wrote it as an homage to, uh, Richard Lehman, who is a great author. I mean, he's a sick guy, <laughs> but a good kind of sick, depending on what you like. Um, really violent, uh, hardcore novels, you know, really, uh, fun reads, but, uh, you know, I don't know if women would like his stories, although you never know. But uh, this has a lot of uh, um, Richard Lehman's um, style, you know, kind of to it. But um, not, he doesn't go as far as Lehman would have, I don't think, in a lot of it. But um, it's kind of a survivor, kind of a game show set on an island. And uh, what happens to them uh, when they, uh, they get attacked by these um, beasts that live on the island. They're kind of like missing link kind of things. And Keen um, um, explains kind of what they are after the book is over. And it's just a great story. And, uh, you know, if you uh, haven't read any Brian Keen, I would definitely recommend it. He seems like a really nice guy. Um, been to his, his site a bunch of times and used to kind of go on his uh, forums there but not not a big forum person myself and those don't exist anymore anyway um, his forums but uh, just seems like a nice guy and I think he's a really good writer and most of his stuff is a, it's a pretty fast read usually and he's got some interesting ideas on my first exposure to him was in The Rising which is a zombie uh, post-apocalyptic or I guess apocalypse because it's actually going on it's not after it um, where his take on zombies is that they're kind of possessed by spirits or um, like these demons I think they're called the squism 
and I don't know how you pronounce it, but uh, pretty cool because uh, instead of just being mindless, these zombies are intelligent, but they're evil, you know. So it's a it's a neat story, and then the city of city of the dead is the sequel. The only thing I didn't like about it was it was so downbeat because there's no way you could get away from these zombies, you know. And then he did another uh, take on more Romero style zombies with Dead Sea, which is really good, and Conqueror Worms, which I really liked. Um, but Forbidden Book Group guys kind of ripped on it, but I thought it was really good. Um, so if if you get a chance to read Brian Keane, I would definitely recommend it. I've read a lot of his stuff, and I have yet to be disappointed. You know, he's an entertaining author, uh, makes you think sometimes, and uh, you know you can't beat that. I think um, compared to Stephen King, you know his more modern stuff. I think Keane is a lot more fun. You know, and like I said earlier, also if you. Uh, if you give Richard Lehman a try, you might like that too. Pretty good. Um, some fun stuff from Richard Lehman books. Um, but, you know, I'm a huge early Stephen King fan. Like the Bachman books are my favorite. Like Rage and The Long Walk. But, uh, you know, King hasn't been that good in a long time, I don't think. So, you know, if you're looking for a, a new author, you could do way worse than giving Brian Keene a try. So... But that's it for uh, this edition of the Dark Room Podcast. Um, hope everyone has a great holiday. And, uh, you know, if you get a chance, watch uh, It's a Wonderful Life. It's a great movie. And uh, if you also get the chance to watch uh, A Christmas Carol, I, again, would definitely re- recommend the 1984 version. It's... Uh, my favorite of all the versions I saw. And, uh, of course, stars George C. Scott, who is a great actor. If you get a chance to watch any George C. Scott, I also recommend that, too. So, until next time, I'm Paul, and thanks for listening to the Dark Room Podcast. And uh, now, why not go watch a movie or read a Brian Keene book? Mr. Cratchit! Here, sir. Do you know what time it is? Yes, sir. What time is it? Eighteen minutes past the hour, sir. Eighteen and a half minutes past the hour. What do you mean, coming here at this time of day? I'm sorry, sir. I am behind my time. Yes, I think you are. Step this way, sir, if you will, please. It's only once a year, sir. It shall not be repeated. I was making rather merry yesterday. Hmm. Well, I'll tell you, my friend. I'm not going to stand for this any longer. Therefore, therefore, I am going to double your salary. Double my salary, sir. <laughs> <laughs> a Merry Christmas to you. <laughs> I'll double your salary for a start. 
and I'll endeavor to assist your family in any way I can. And Tim, Tim will walk again and grow stronger and stronger upon my life. And we'll, <laughs> well, we'll discuss the particulars this afternoon over a Christmas bowl. Hmm. Well, what's the matter with you? Nothing, sir. Well, it's just that... Nothing. Oh, my good fellow. We'll make up the fire before we freeze to death. <laughs> Buy some more coal. Before you dot another eye, Bob Cratchit. Yes, sir. Ebenezer Scrooge was better than his word. He became as good a friend, as good a master, as good a man as the old city knew. And to Tiny Tim, who did not die, he was a second father. It was said of Ebenezer Scrooge that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, and all of us. And so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, every one.